couple of important detail items. Uh, first of all, uh, they talked about the, uh, the video for the financial class here in the beginning of the service. I wasn't in here because I was downstairs talking to the discovery class, which started this morning, but um, I wanted you to uh, not let that video slip by without paying special attention to what was going on there. In the next couple weeks, on March 20th, that financial class that will be starting up on Saturday mornings will go from 9 o'clock till 11 o'clock. I taught finances when I was on staff at Trinity uh, for quite a number of years, and we took 500 people through these financial training programs. And I will tell you, it has life-changing impact on individuals. It's a powerful class. And if you can manage in your time schedule to set aside the 12 weeks for that class and come in on Saturday mornings, I promise you, it is powerful material. And it, it's not just for those who are financially struggling, but for those who have never perhaps learned a good budgeting technique or for those who want to learn more about how to invest in a godly way, the really, really good material. Dave Ramsey does the majority of the teaching on DVD, so pay special attention to that. And there are scholarships available for individuals who uh, can't pay for the class up front, so we will talk to you further about that later, and you'll hear more details next week about it. Um, another thing is, it came up with kind of a, I think it's a clever thing, we'll find out. Um, we're going to do a, uh, a question and answer night uh, coming up in two weeks on the first Sunday in uh, March. And it's a uh, Q&A thing for adults. I've done that with high school students for a number of months and uh, they always came up with remarkable questions. So we're going to call this Pizza with a Pastor. And uh, if you'll come on um, Sunday night, um, coming up in the first Sunday night in March, we're going to talk about anything that we've learned so far from the book of Revelation and anybody that has questions related to Scripture. Um, here's what I want to encourage you to do, though, if you're going to participate. It would be great if you could identify someone in your life who is not a church person necessarily. Or perhaps they're just really skeptical and they've got a lot of questions about the Bible. Invite them along, okay? It's going to be a very informal setting. We'll be downstairs sitting around tables and... Um, eating pizza and drinking soda and talking about things of scripture and so let's not play stump the pastor, okay? But, but I do want you to ask the questions that are really on your heart if you want to participate in that. Talk to people in the first service about it and, and looking forward to it. So take advantage of that. We'll talk again next week about that. Well, we're going to step into some really difficult material this morning. Um, very factual material. Uh, but also we don't want to lose that heart of a worshiper as we're looking at that. So let's take a minute and pray and ask God to give us the proper eyes to see this with. Father, we step into a study of your word this morning that we want to be more than just academic. and We desire that it becomes part of our, our nature to understand your nature. Not just so that we can quote facts and statistics, that doesn't bring people into the kingdom. But the knowledge of your nature and character to redeem the lost, that wins people all the time. So Father, I ask that you give those of us who are seeking with earnest eyes, that uh, you give us the ability to process this uh, through our intellectual being, um, but through the being of our heart as well. What we call the spiritual eyes to see and the spiritual ears to hear. Father, I ask that you would bless this time, that your spirit would brood over this room in causing our hearts to be open to the things that you want to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll do a brief review with you of what we studied last week, especially if you weren't here last week to help you get caught up to speed. 
Um, we looked at the first four seals of the scroll in the book of Revelation as Jesus begins to open the seals. And each one of the seals, there's associated with it a, a horse, a horseman, called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you're familiar with that at all, that saying, the four horsemen of the apocalypse would be a, a white horse and a red horse and a black horse and an ashen horse or a pale colored horse. And the first one was associated with false peace, the white horse in which Antichrist arrives on planet Earth with this white horse looking like a conqueror like Christ, but not Christ, and setting up this false world government, false peace. And the second horse that came in was the one that brought war with it, the red horse. And then the third seal represented the, the third horse, the black horse, which brought famine and plague all over the face of the earth. And then the fourth horse arrives, the fourth horseman, and it has this sickly yellow color to it, the ashen-colored horse, and that one brings death. And so these first four horsemen of the apocalypse that you see are these first four seals, and that's the end of the horsemen. They don't reappear again with the seals. What we're about to step into is Jesus now breaking the fifth seal, and the results that take place on earth found in the sixth seal are a massive worldwide earthquake in which life as we know it is decimated. And that's what's projected in the sixth seal. As each seal is opened, things get progressively worse and God just unleashes his fury on the earth. But there is a danger in just seeing it in that way. Admittedly, if we look at this through the eyes of someone who would say, man, this God in Revelation is just so much full of vengeance. Who would want to follow a God like that? If you look at it only through those eyes, you immediately want to criticize God. You want to criticize his action. If you forget that it's only after millennia of millennia of millennia that God has been incredibly patient with us, waiting. And so if I was going to put a capital title over the top of this teaching today, I'd put the word grace, just like we just sung about. You will never sing amazing grace again the same way after you see God's grace in the midst of this teaching. While there's this horrific destruction, I want to frame this in such a way that we really capture what's going on. So I came across this passage in 2 Thessalonians this week that helped me really grasp what God is doing. Sent it out to a few friends for them to weigh in on it as well to see what's going on in this particular text. Sometimes you just want to step back and say, what is someone else's perspective on this? So I'm going to ask you to do this. Really think, really concentrate hard with this passage as it comes up because this is extraordinarily complex. See what's going on here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Let no one, this is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come. Well, what's, what's the it? The end times, okay, the, the Antichrist, the, the tribulation period. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, meaning the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Verse 6, 
and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So simplify this. After the removal of the restraint from planet Earth, this Antichrist rises up, this seed of Satan, the one who has the power. I want you to see this word restrain in the text in the way that it was intended in the Greek. Kateko is the word that's used here. Kateko means restrain. Definition is hold fast, possess, retain, seize on, or withhold. Now that's a definition for it. This is an image for you. It's like putting handcuffs on a criminal, okay? So we see this one restraining a force. Immediately as I read through a text like that, I say, well, who's the he that's restraining? And specifically, what is he restraining? And importantly, that he is restraining means that this one that's been handcuffed wants to surge forward. He wants to carry out his actions, but he's being held back, held down. Why is he being held back? Well, we can answer some of these first questions. Who's the he that restrains? That's the power of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit restraining this evil force we call Antichrist. What is he restraining? Specifically, the being Antichrist, restraining the work of Satan. But that he is restraining. Why is he doing that? Let me show you a passage from Genesis. Genesis 6.3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, meaning for now, his days shall be 120 years. There's this period of time in which God said, I will put up with man, but this time limit will come to an end. For now, his days will be 120 years, but it will come to an end. This word strive that God uses here, my spirit shall not strive, is the word Adonai, from which we get the word Adonai, means a ruler. Look at the definition for it. A sovereign controller, by implication to judge as an umpire, to strive as at law, contend. God's saying, I am not going to contend with man forever. Nevertheless, I will for a period of time. I needed, as I read this, a way to understand, to grasp a measure of God's grace. How do you put that in the human mind, in the realm of our thinking? How do we contain that thought, God's grace? Being a financially thinking person, as I'm sure many of you are, I started equating minutes to hours to dollars, thinking of if I could measure God's unit of grace, how would I do that? Well, I broke it down to minutes. I specifically started thinking, well, if, if every minute represented a dollar of God's grace, I'd run out of minutes or dollars really quick. And I started thinking, how many minutes are in a day that have gone by that God has had to extend grace to us? So I started thinking out one, two, three. I ran out after three dollars. <laughs> and so I started putting it down on screen. There's 1,440 minutes in a day. So let me have you look at this with me. Let's process this together. If there's 1,440 minutes in a day that go by, that means there's 525,000 minutes 
in a year. Let's start adding some zeros to that. How many are there then in 10 years? In 10 years, there's 5,256,000 minutes. Let's go to 100 years. That'd be 52 million minutes in 100 years. Let's go to 1,000 years. 525,600,000 minutes in 1,000 years. Now, if that was dollars, it puts a whole new perspective on national debt, doesn't it? When you think of 525 million would take you back 1,000 years, let's see how far back we need to go to go back to the time of Adam and Eve. 10,000 years. 5,256,000,000 minutes in 10,000 years. For over 5 billion year, minutes, God has been waiting, waiting, waiting. Every minute that clicked by since Adam and Eve turned their back on God in the garden. There was a point in time we understand in Scripture in which Adam walked with God in the garden. He says in the cool of the day, he walked with God. And God came looking for him. One day, Adam decided to walk his own direction. He wandered away from God for somewhere around 10,000 years. God has been waiting for us to return. He loves us that much. Moment by moment by moment. Here's the temptation. When we read the book of Revelation and when we study it the way we do, individuals could look at it and say, what a vindictive God. I want you to get a new framework, a new picture of God this morning. So let's look together first on the screen at Exodus 34, 6. This is what God says about himself, about his nature. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. Who's the him? Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and what? Gracious slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Moses said, God, I want to see you. I'd like to see what you look like. He never said, describe your nature to me. God did that on his own. He covered Moses' face because Moses would be consumed with the glory of God. And as he covered his face and passed by, I am gracious. I am full of loving kindness. I am patient. That's what he declared about himself. Look at some of these other descriptions. Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. New Testament, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Think of a parent with a missing child. My son Adam is not here, so I can tell this story about him. When he was four years old, we went shopping in a mall. And when we took him into this mall, Adam decided he was bored, and so he thought he'd start playing hide-and-seek, only he didn't tell us, okay? So Lori and I are shopping, looking at the clothing racks, and he's gone. Lori turns with a fearful shout of a mother, where's Adam? Blonde, little four-year-old boy, we can't find him any place. She runs out into the mall. She's looking up and down the corridors, starts screaming for the security guards. I drop to the floor, and I start looking on the floor for his tennis shoes, something that's familiar. Didn't see them any place. 
couldn't see any feet other than adult feet. So one minute, two minute, three minute, our heart is pounding out of our chest. Eight minutes, nine minutes go by, we can't find him any place. We're enlisting the help of the store employees at this point. Help us find our son. He's missing. I look back down on the floor again, and I see a pair of little red tennis shoes drop from below a clothing rack. The little stinker put his feet up on top of the rack so we couldn't see his feet. (laughs) When I think of God the Creator calling us his children and his heart pounding for his missing children, I get a new grasp on these passages. I don't want anyone to perish. I don't want anyone to go away. So this time in which we're learning about, in which God finally carries out the conclusion of man's rebellious behavior on earth, is after millennia on planet earth of putting up with sinful behavior. So none of us should jump to this conclusion that God delights in carrying out this retribution. It grieves him, but he's carrying out his justice. So with the opening of this scroll, God begins his final call across the whole planet of earth, saying, notice me, pay attention. What you're about to see in this text is like a screaming red flag. Pay attention to the end times. This last verse, Ezekiel 33:11. this is what God says he promises by himself. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Would that the world would understand that. This is a loving father calling everyone back. So let's step into the understanding of tribulation here. Tribulation takes place in three successive judgments. The first ones we're looking at right now called the seal judgments. One, two, three, four, five, and six. The seventh seal opens up the next set of seven judgments called the trumpet judgments. So you can imagine an angel standing with a trumpet blowing his horn, announcing each judgment, and seven more judgments take place. And at the end of the seventh trumpet judgment, which we'll eventually get into, there are seven bowl judgments in which the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. So these last two seals that we're gonna look at today, the fifth and sixth, show us what God is beginning to ramp up here on planet earth. And in this seven year period of time, seven literal years, we find ourselves chronologically at the midpoint. The fifth seal stretches from the first part of the tribulation into the second part of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. It's what Jesus calls the days of vengeance. Look at it on the screen, Luke 21, 22. Because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Okay, with all that in mind, open up your text to Revelation chapter six if you haven't done that already. We'll be picking up at verse nine. If you're visiting here today, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you so that you can follow along. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you so you own your own copy of the Word of God. Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. 
I saw under the altar should catch your attention because this is the first time we've ever heard there's this piece of furniture in heaven called an altar. We think in the Old Testament of an altar being contained within the tabernacle and within the temple. If you know your Bible at all, you know that people with the Jewish tradition went to the temple once a year and made sacrifices at the altar to cover over their sins. But why in the world would there need to be an altar in heaven? There's no sin in heaven. So why would there be an altar? Well, we're not really told, but what we do understand from Scripture is that there's a counterpart in heaven for the things God instructed for there to be on earth. And so we see this altar in heaven and these individuals specifically standing at the base of it. At the base of this altar are individuals who have yielded up their life for him. It says, I saw the souls of those who had been slain. Souls is the word psyche, from which we get psychiatry or psych, uh, psychology. Psyche means literally an individual person. So what John says, I'm seeing individual people here, and they're fadzo. Remember that word from three weeks ago when John saw Jesus as the lamb who had been slain? He saw him as the lamb fadzo. Look at the definition for fadzo. To butcher especially in sacrifice, to slaughter or to maim violently. So John looks and he sees these individuals who have been martyred. We use the word martyred in English. In Greek, it's martus. It literally means witness. I see these people who have been witnesses. Witnesses for what? Specifically for the word of God. Who are these people? They are those who are aware of what's going on, the circumstances around them in the great tribulation. And they're looking and seeing these pieces of the puzzle coming together. They understand from what's being said here in Scripture that this one who's come to power looks like the description of the Antichrist. There are clearly people who come to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of the tribulation, who come to a saving knowledge and become witnesses for the kingdom. And so they're witnessing because of the word of God. Look at the definition here with me on the screen at Revelation 24. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Do you know that's the exact same expression that John used describing himself in Revelation chapter 1? Remember when he said, I'm standing on the shores of the island Patmos because of the witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ? He was being imprisoned just like these people had been killed, they'd been fadzo because of the witness of Jesus Christ. So it makes it very clear there are individuals during the midst of the tribulation who will come to faith in Jesus Christ and they will be beheaded because of it. You'll understand more of that as we move forward. But Jesus specifically said in Matthew chapter 24, people will be killed who are believers in Christ. Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Are we hated by all nations because of his name yet? No, that hasn't happened yet. That will happen Christians will be despised because of the worship. And at the time of the worshiping of Antichrist, he will make war with Christians. Look specifically at what it says in Revelation 13, 7. He will make war with the saints and overcome them. Who? Anyone 
who refuses to have the mark of Antichrist on their right hand or on their forehead, Scripture says, will be beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ. Not just because they refuse to worship, not just because they refuse to take the mark, but also because they are witnessing for Jesus Christ. Worldwide worship of Antichrist is what's taking place. People are bowing down to this guy's feet. They're worshiping him so Christians stand out like a sore thumb. They can't participate in economy. There's no buying and selling going on unless you have the mark. So immediately, you're shut down from a food supply. You're shut down from your job. And it gets extremely, extremely difficult to survive. Look at this description of what's going on in planet Earth in Revelation 13.3. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, the Antichrist. They worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? So this fifth seal that we're looking at right now is different than the first four seals. Because what it's going to do is it reveals the action. The action that's about to take place in seal number six. Now let's remember this. In the first seal, second seal, third seal, and fourth seal, we saw a force associated with each of them. What was the first one? First one was false peace. The force of false peace. Second one, the force of war. Third one, the force is famine. And the fourth one, the force is death. There's a force here in the midst of the fifth seal also. Let's see if you can identify what it is. Verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Blood that's been taken as an act of murder screams out to God. That's what Scripture tells us. You remember when God confronted Cain after he slew Abel? God stood, in the, in the book of Genesis we read, God came to Cain and he said, Cain, your brother's blood screams out to me from the ground. The blood of the martyrs here is screaming out to God. It's kradzo is the word that's used here. Look at the definition for it. To call aloud, exclaim, cry out. And it means there's a lot of emotion associated with this. God, bring your vengeance on this earth. Why won't you carry this out? And how do they do it? They specifically appeal to God's attributes. They say, you who are holy because he must judge sin and you who are true, you've got to be faithful to your word. Notice that God's justice is considered unjust if he doesn't judge sin. That's what they recognize. So these individuals here are crying out to God saying, God, bring vengeance on our behalf. Carry out your justice. I noted three things while I was looking at that particular verse about individuals who are in heaven. Friends of ours who have died and have gone to eternity. Family members. I especially thought about this because I was thinking about my mom who passed away three years ago this, this month. And I was thinking about how aware are individuals in heaven about the things going on here on earth. And I see specifically, these individuals have not lost their interest in earthly things at all. As a matter of fact, they're acutely aware of what's going on on earth. They're very well informed. God, are you gonna carry this out? How much longer are you gonna wait? And here's another thing I noticed. The time in this position right here is when grace is coming to an end. God's grace is about to end because you see 
believers who are the redeemed in perfection in eternity, they're not saying, Father, forgive them for killing us. They're saying, God, take their life. End of grace. Grace is coming to an end. Third thing that I see here, they don't have full knowledge of God's plans. Even though they're aware of what's going on earth and they're in eternity, they don't understand everything that's taking place. So they're saying, how much longer is this going to be? And so God responds to them. He informs them the tribulation is not over yet. You've got to wait a little bit longer. Look at verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So first of all, God gives them this gift. Do you remember in Revelation 3, 5? Jesus said, to those who overcome the nakaos, I'm going to give you a white robe. This is what you see here. He's rewarding them, giving them this robe of righteousness, and he gives them this, this long robe. It's called a stole in Greek, and it was brilliant white, and it flowed all the way down to their feet. And it's a, a piece of clothing that represents righteousness, the righteousness that they inherited through Jesus. And he says to them, rest for a little while longer. How much longer do you think? Until the second coming of Jesus Christ. You've got to rest because you read in Revelation chapter 20 that these individuals accompany Jesus back to the earth, riding horses with him as he rides out leading the armies of heaven. So in the second coming, that's how much longer they've got to wait until the second coming of Christ. Now this next part is going to really mess with your theology. If you were brought up to believe or if you've maybe perhaps learned in the last number of years that God wants nothing for you but abundance and wealth and health and prosperity. This portion here will trouble you. I want you to look closely at it. Until, how much longer do they have to rest? A little while longer until the number of those who are to be killed, their fellow servants, would be completed also. They've got to finish their role as kingdom warriors that God has set them apart for. They've got a task. God predetermined an exact number of individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are going to be killed for the witness of God. Now, this is the reason it messes with your theology because there's some that would teach, God wants nothing for you but prosperity and wealth and health. Well, this is inconsistent with this. God specifically said, there's some who are going to be beheaded because of the sake of my name. Now you don't see these individuals saying, what, you knew? You knew I was gonna be beheaded? Well, of course God knew. And it doesn't catch them by surprise. So they have to rest a little while longer. I'm gonna give you a new perspective on grace this morning. We quote John 3.16 in the church. We're famous for memorizing it. We teach it day and night to the kids downstairs. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. What? To redeem and bring back into the kingdom. Here's a new perspective. God loves the wicked so much that he allows those who believe in his name to be executed in order to accomplish his purposes. If it means stretching out the tribulation fully instead of carrying out vengeance when they're asking for it, because more people will come into the kingdom during that period of time. God's grace extends 
mixed with his vengeance. And it's a difficult thing to get in my mind. I really troubled myself over this as I'm looking at it and thinking, wow, God, you are so gracious. You are allowing believers to die a horrible death because you need to accomplish your purposes. Now, you won't hear that every place, but it's a reality that God doesn't always give health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes he allows us to go through very trying circumstances, but truly, a time will come when his patience will wear out and grace comes to an end. Look up on the screen at Acts 17.30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. What you're about to see now is the full force of God's wrath being unleashed upon planet earth. This segment, this next portion here, is a response to the plea for the cry of vengeance. Look at the sixth seal, verse 12. I looked. When he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Jesus spoke about this moment also in Matthew chapter 24. He said there was going to be a great earthquake one day. When I knew about a year ago that I was going to begin teaching on the book of Revelation, I started watching on a weekly basis the website associated with the National Geographic and Oceanic Society. Uh, it's a government website which tracks earthquakes all over the face of the earth. I was fascinated to see some of the things that came out of it, but I'll give myself a caution here for your benefit. It's a dangerous thing when pastors try to pretend to be scientists, okay? So I'm not going to do that to you. What I'm going to show you are the things that I came up with as a result of some of the research that I've done. I found something very fascinating about this portion of Scripture that talks about earthquakes in the last days. I want you to see this image, first of all, up on the screen. This is a global image. This comes from the government website. Every single little black dot represents an earthquake on the face of the earth, what they call an event in the last 35 years from 1963 to 1998. There's 358,214 earthquakes in a 35-year period of time. Now, what they determine to be an event is anything greater than a 4.1 magnitude, something that really trips off the seismographic indicators. Many of them take place underneath the ocean on the surface of the ocean floor. Many of them, as you can see, take place on a constant basis along the fault lines that make up the crustal surface of our planet. What I found to be fascinating as I was doing some research is the description from individuals who have lived through some of these earthquakes, and I put it in association with what Revelation is talking about that will take place. Of these 358,000 earthquakes that took place in the last 35 years, some of them have been so horrific that the, the destruction that goes with it is almost unimaginable. If we hadn't just had Haiti in the back of our mind in the last few weeks, it might be more difficult to grasp this. But as I read this description to you, think of the book of Revelation and what John says that he saw. Here's an individual who lived through one of these destructive earthquakes. Extreme damage. Almost all brick buildings collapsed. 
Concrete structures heavily damaged and freight trains are derailed. Surfaces are ruptured, severe destruction from subsequent firestorms. 694,000 houses partially or completely destroyed. Six feet of permanent uplift is observed. A tsunami was generated with waves reaching to 39 feet. There were large numbers of landslides and ground cracks throughout the epicenter. Rivers are dammed, others changed course. Stone buildings swayed violently and then collapsed on the population. Fire has ravaged the city. One quarter of the population perished. Ground fissures, uplift, sand blows, liquefaction, and landslides. Water is gushing out of the fissures. That sounds like that could come right out of the book of Revelation. In the last 10 years, there have been six major earthquakes. I'm going to read them to you to refresh you on what happened. If you're older than 10 years, it happened in your lifetime. China, 7.8 magnitude, 200,000 people killed. Japan, 7.9 magnitude, 142,000 people killed. Turkmenistan, 7.3 magnitude, 110,000 people killed. China, 655,000 people killed, 7.5 magnitude. Sumatra, 2004, 286,000 people killed, 9.1 magnitude. Pakistan, 2005, 86,000 people killed, 7.6 magnitude. Last one, China again, 2008, 87,587,000 people killed, 7.9 magnitude. Scripture says that earthquakes in the last days will take place in divers places. That word meaning in unusual places with great destruction. This earthquake that we're reading about here, as you'll see in just a minute, is of such magnitude that nothing that I just read to you will compare to what will take place in this last earthquake. As a matter of fact, it says in Scripture that it's so severe that it causes mountains to tremble and crumble and islands to sink into the sea. This is the full force of God's wrath being unleashed. So when he says the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon as blood, there's so much smoke in the air from the volcanoes erupting and the fissures breaking forth. You can't see the sun. It's like it's obscured. This sackcloth that he's writing about, it was a black goat that lived at that time made from cilian cloth. And it was so dark black that when you held it up to the sunlight, you couldn't see through it. And no wonder the moon looks like blood. If you were here during the time of Mount St. Helens explosion on the west coast, you saw the moon at night and you saw the redness, the tint to it. That's what John's describing here. He's not a scientist. So he's doing the best he can like a pastor to say, this is what it looks like. This is my description of it. In short, all hell is breaking loose on the earth. Specifically, this is what it says in verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Can you imagine that? Every mountain, every island moved out of their places? Isaiah saw this same thing. Ancient prophet, way back in time. This is what he said, Isaiah 34, 4. The host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. What will be the effect on people on the planet Earth? How will they respond to what's going on? Look at the next verse, verse 15. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What an incredibly sad verse. I don't know if I've seen more verses in Scripture that are more sad than that. Ever since Adam and Eve willfully walked away from God, what did they do? They tried to hide. They went behind a tree and God came back to them and it says in the same day that they sinned, God walked through the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 6-3, and what did he do? Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam came out from behind a tree and what did he say? I hid from you because I was afraid. These individuals would know the grace of God if they weren't hiding from the wrath of God. And instead of falling on their knees, desperately they crawl out, kill us! Let the rocks collapse on us. Hide us from what's going on. Do you notice the classifications here? It starts out with the kings of the earth. There's seven classifications. It goes from the rich to the poorest of the poor. And they're all doing the exact same thing. They're hiding from God. The same one who would grasp them and bring them in and give them salvation. And they don't know it. They don't even recognize it. So verse 17 ends it. This is what it says. For the great day of their wrath, there meaning God and Jesus, the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? John, who saw all these things, asked that question. I bet it's been a really long time since you read the book of Nahum, right? I bet if you opened up your Bibles to the book of Nahum, a little bit of dust would puff out of there, okay? <laughs> if you look with me on the screen, you'll see a description from a very old prophet who wrote thousands of years ago about the arrival of the presence of God. It comes from the book of Nahum. Nahum 1.5, mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Who can stand in the presence of God Almighty? You remember that word stand? We looked at it four weeks ago when John first saw Jesus. And he said, he stood before the throne and thrones were stood in place. The word is histome. And it means to present yourself before the judge. So John's saying, who can present themselves before one as mighty as this? You can, if you have the blood of Jesus Christ covering your life. That's the only way it happens. That's why he asked the question, who can stand in the midst of this? I'll raise my hand and say, I can, I can, John. Hopefully you can too. That's why he asked this rhetorical question, who can stand? Who indeed? No one except for the grace of God. That's what we claim. This is the end of civilization as we know it. All people upon the earth have rejected Christ will experience this if their natural life doesn't cut it short first. 
Peter said something incredible when he looked forward to this moment in time that God revealed to him. 2 Peter 3.10, look at what he said. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Do you know what Peter wrote just before he put that one down? Yeah, verse nine, obviously. But let me read to you what he wrote. This is what it says. Verse nine, just before that, says this. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then he breaks forth into that. That's what he desires for us, to repent and come back to him. That's the measure of grace we need to remember as we speak with our friends who are far from God. Let's help them understand God is not willing that any should perish. Let's pray. Father, because you are just and true and righteous, we declare in confidence that we look forward to the day in which we will be reunited with you because you have made us worthy of being reunited through the, reunited through the blood of Christ. But Father, each of us in this room, room know many individuals who are uh, willingly not walking with you. I dare say, I think what you've labeled in Scripture, you called them wicked because they've rejected Jesus Christ. It's very hard to rectify that thought in our minds, Father, that you would think of those individuals as being wicked. But for the grace of God, that would be us as well. So we look upon what you've gifted us with, with eternal life in Jesus Christ, and we ask for that for friends and family members who are far from you. So Father, I ask on behalf of every man and woman in this room and every student, every child, that for those that we know in our social circle who have rejected Jesus Christ, God, that you would give them such unrest. I'll tolerate that train, Father. Make them so uncomfortable, Father, that they would seek you out. God, let them chase after you as one chase after water. Make them thirst after you. And Father, if we can be an instrument in that in some way, use us. God, I ask if we've been equipped with this knowledge that you would use us to boldly proclaim the truth. Don't let us uncomfortably walk away from conversations because we don't know what to say. By the prompting of your Holy Spirit, give us the understanding of the things that you would like to say because you are a gracious God. Father, these are the things that we ask as we take on this week. We step into things that are totally unknown to us. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know if MSU is going to win this afternoon. But Father, we step into this afternoon trusting you, believing that you want the best for us and that you alone can equip us with the boldness to speak boldly on your behalf. So do that. We ask that in the name of the King of Kings, the one who redeemed us, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.